Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Premier Doug Ford announces that come early next week, we are going to be shocked and scared by the modeling numbers that are coming out concerning COVID-19. Joseph Brandt has just completed its first week with its new field hospital. It's been built since April. How badly do we need it? And Donald Trump is changing his tone and announced that he will not be attending the presidential inauguration later in January. Are people cheering? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Shouldn't you have a mask on? You're kind of close to me here, son. Sharing a mic. I don't think it's a good idea. Sleep on the porch last night? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. The Premier has read Ontario the Riot Act as COVID-19 numbers soar. Now is not the time for that sweaty game of shirtless twister with your new friends. What? Nuh-uh! It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! How else do you make fun of what's going on? Oh, my goodness. Uh, did you hear the premier this morning? Uh, it was uh, it was pretty dark. Uh, good morning. Good afternoon. Sorry. Uh, good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson home show on the air. Uh, don't forget Facebook and Twitter. You'll find the podcast edition of the commentary waiting for you there. And you can always send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines are always open, 905-645-3221, star 9900 uh, on your cell. Lots to talk about on the show today, including a, a very somber uh, news conference earlier on this morning uh, in regard to uh, COVID-19 and the Premier's remarks. We'll talk to Travis Danraj from Queen's Park uh, and Global News coming up in just a second on that. Uh, the Premier this morning, uh, some pretty grim, uh, a pretty grim tone as he talked about numbers that will be released, modeling numbers that will be released early next week that do not paint a pretty picture. Uh, here's what he had to say, for example, in regard to vaccines. All of Ontario will be out of Pfizer vaccines by the end of next week. We're all hopeful the federal government will get us more vaccines. Without them, hospitals will have to start cancelling appointments. And all the progress we've made getting our daily vaccine numbers up will be lost as clinics stand by waiting for vaccines from the feds. All right. uh, The premier earlier this morning uh, talking about some very grim numbers that are coming next week. Let's bring in Travis Danraj, Queens Park Bureau uh, Chief for Global News. He is with us now. Travis, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, I'm good, Scott. It was, it was pretty sobering to hear the Premier uh, with that tone this morning, and we're expecting to hear more on that front uh, when it comes to the modeling data, which is looking very grim, apparently, and that is coming on Tuesday. So, uh, not that all of the, I mean, certainly none of these have been a party by any means, but uh, obviously, as you said, a very much sober tone uh, this time out. Is is this going to resonate? Because a lot of people are talking about doing this, doing that, and so on and so forth, yet we heard, you know, the study over the, the holidays where uh, almost half didn't really ab- abide by the protocol and stay within uh, their immediate family and such. So, uh, obviously, the, the Premier here is trying to set a tone to, to, to give us a blast of reality. Is this going to work, do you think, Travis? Well, listen, there, there comes a point where, you know, just a, a stern tone with people saying, please abide by public health measures does not work. And, you know, clearly over the Christmas break, we saw some people, uh, you know, just kind of not heeding the public uh, health advice and meeting with family and going to gatherings uh, for New Year's. We saw, you know, some of that as well. So I, I think that the premier was signaling today, and if you read the tea leaves here, that, you know, we don't get this together in the next couple of weeks. We are going to be in for what you are seeing happening in Quebec right now. You know, he has not said, uh, which he said earlier on in the pandemic, that curfews were off the table. He was asked about that uh, as well the past couple of days. That is now on the table as well. I'm just leaving Queen's Park right now. Cabinet is meeting currently. They're probably looking at some of this data and figuring out what additional measures are you know, going to need to be taken. Even when it comes to schools, four days ago, five days ago now it is, you know, Stephen Lecce, the education minister, said that 
school would be resuming on Monday, mm-hmm. on the 11th. Just yesterday, we know that decision then changed to say, no, kids are not going back to school until at least the 25th, and that might be extended as well. So it is a dire situation. And the other thing that Barbara Yaffe, the Associate Medical Officer of Health, brought up is the fact that we are now seeing the South African variant. We have six cases uh, of the variant uh, COVID strain in Ontario, and that is 56% more contagious. She also said that there are likely more cases out there that we don't know about. So that's an X factor as well. Uh, if we continue to see more cases uh, of, that, of that variant, that is very concerning as well. It was also concerning to uh, her tone as well. And, you know, talking about the numbers, as you mentioned, are are, uh, coming out the the early part of next week. She said, to be frank, they're scary. Uh, Can you feel the tone change around there today? Yeah, I certainly can. Uh, You you know, uh, I I think, you know, people were hopeful in government and sources were hopeful a couple of weeks ago that we could get through this. We could get through the holidays. Uh, and then we could be out on uh, the other side uh, of things with businesses starting to open up, lockdowns starting to, to ease in some regions. That is not the case. You know, you saw yesterday as well when they announced the, the school closure would be extended, that they extended as well, uh, you know, the lockdown in northern Ontario. And, and some of the most troubling information that we heard yesterday as well is that the case numbers are rising in some of these smaller communities. It's not just downtown Toronto now. Uh, it's not just the large urban centers and the GTA. Some of the smaller centers are, are seeing a very uh, large increase in, in numbers. You know, one of the things I wanted to point out, the, the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, uh, across the pond, they have basically put in a state of emergency in that city. And we know, you know, what, what's happening over in Europe, uh, as we saw at the beginning of this pandemic, eventually ends up coming this way. So, you know, we just have to look uh, across the pond, even to our next-door neighbours in Quebec to see what the warning is, what potentially could happen here in Ontario. And I think the Premier tried to deliver that message today to say, folks, we have to take this seriously. We can't get uh, you know, our guard down. And he understands people have COVID fatigue right now. But you know, we, we really have to be vigilant because we're, we're entering uh, perhaps what is a crisis state when it comes to ICU capacity, when it comes to hospitalization. Uh, getting back to schools, Travis, uh, obviously, uh, m- you know, many are concerned and, and we know about the education system in the sense that they, you know, they pride themselves on consistency and providing a consistent uh, environment for the kids every day and that sort of thing. And this has been anything uh, but consistent. But these numbers that are coming out uh, that we've seen over the holiday period and, and something like one in five of those under 13 uh, have been exposed to this virus. Uh, I guess right now the province is dealing with, you know, the kids are at home and it's already gone up. And if we take those kids and put them back in school, it's it's just going to be a cesspool, obviously. But there's a lot of people out there, and I understand there's some demonstrations, uh, trying to keep the kids in school. Well, you know, if you are going to put kids back in school at some point, you need to take the appropriate measures. And there's been a lot of criticism that the government has not done that. You look at somewhere like New York, for example, and some places in New York, what they are doing is they are taking, you know, 25 percent of the kids on Mondays and doing rapid tests for asymptomatic, uh, you know, symptoms. Uh, and whether or not they test positive, if they test positive, they find out that pretty uh, quickly, and then the, the kids go home. You know, there's been a large question. The education minister has been asked about this repeatedly. What is the plan for asymptomatic testing when school does resume, and how can we uh, I- increase the level that we are doing right now? They, they have done it, kind of test pilots and hotspots, but the, the ask is that this be done on a much uh, broader scale. Uh, the education minister, obviously, with this uh, being delayed, said he had more time to work on this. Uh, what can you tell us? And you, you did touch on this, that they're going to try targeting testing or, or they're tar- uh, targeting certain areas and testing there. How much do we know about that? 
Yeah, and this is this is one of the criticisms as well because you know Stephen Lachey was asked today again, and I interviewed him yesterday about what what is the plan here going forward, and he kind of just rambled off some of the things that they are all already doing. Uh, you know, getting uh, increasing ventilation in schools. You know, updating some of those uh, HVAC systems, increasing cleaning uh, and caretaking staff. But these are things that are already in place. Uh, and, and the and the ask is from the unions and from teachers and from parents, a lot of parents as well, saying, "Okay, well that that's great, but clearly we need to do more in order to protect our our students." So, I, I mean, we will be looking to the Ministry of Education over the next couple of weeks while school is virtual in most of Ontario uh, to see what the specifics of that plan are, because right now the details are few and far between. Now, there seems to be a bit of debate about uh, vaccination. Uh, obviously, initially, none of this was supposed to arrive till January. Then we remember before Christmas, these uh, surprise shipments came in uh, prior to Christmas. Obviously, the province is not ready for distribution. They, they were they were planning for January. That being said, uh, did what they could. You know, all the provinces uh, trying hard to get, I guess, these programs up and running. Ontario criticized uh, for being towards the end of that list initially when this all started i guess a week ago now ramping all of that back up and and saying that we're in fact running out of vaccines it seems to be some politics between the provinces and uh and the prime minister here is there well you you did hear the premier kind of walk that line today saying that he thinks that the prime minister is doing a fantastic job but he's also calling on the federal government to supply Ontario with more vaccines because we're going to run out, as you heard in that clip that you played, by next week of the Pfizer vaccine. One of the problems that they are initially dealing with, uh, because we did get a lot of doses of the Pfizer vaccine initially, was making that mobile. Because right now, it's only in a handful of facilities that have these deep freeze uh, capabilities because it needs to be stored at like you know the temperature of average temperature of Mars, right? It's very mm-hmm. it's very cold temperatures, and getting that out to long term care homes, uh, you know, nursing homes, etc., has been a challenge. So they have to you know implement some of the uh, they have to procure some of these technologies. You know, I was talking to a uh, a CEO last week of uh, one of these companies that basically makes these high-tech coolers that can make these vaccines more portable. They they need to figure out that plan for the Pfizer vaccine, and they also need to uh, procure more of the Moderna vaccine. And we heard the Premier again today say that he wants the government to approve the AstraZeneca vaccine, because once we have a number of these, and once we get more vaccine, we will be able to roll it out quicker. But right now, you're right. The, the, the issue is supply. We were up to, I think, we vaccinated the, in the latest numbers today that were released. I think it was over 70,000. So that's the largest number of vaccinations that we've seen over the past several weeks. Travis, last question here. I know you got to run. Um, since this started uh, way back when, it was always testing, testing, testing. Um, you know, uh, once we got all the supplies in, then there was an issue trying to test and we couldn't get things up fast enough. Uh, and that's sort of been the ongoing mantra, but we don't seem to be any farther ahead on testing. People are saying, why don't you test schools? Why don't you test this? Why don't you test that? We really don't have access to all of these tests, do we? I mean, we don't really have the rapid testing, do we? Or is it in limited form? It's in limited form right now. And, uh, you know, you are, you're right. I mean, they are they're testing record numbers, but there is a call for more testing. And we saw... You know, the premier announced earlier this uh, this week has just been crazy. I think, you know, it feels like 2021 has gone yeah. on for, for, for months and it's the first week or, or so of uh, 2021. But we saw the premier announce uh, just a couple of days ago that there will be, you know, testing at Pearson Airport now. And you're right, they do want to see testing in schools, but they have to procure a lot of those kits. Uh, and that that's a struggle as well. So it's two fronts here. It's the testing uh, as kind of the uh, offense. And then the, the vaccinations as uh, the defense, or flip that, I, I guess. So, uh, I mean, yes, there's a lot of work to be done. And, and the premier, uh, you know, assures folks that there were some bumps along the road when it comes to vaccinations. They're amping that up. They just need more vaccines. There were some bumps along the road with testing, but they are doing everything they can. So basically saying, you know, uh, it's 
full speed ahead right now, pedal to the metal, because we have to get this under control because we don't want curfews. We don't want to see a situation like in Quebec, and we definitely don't want to see what's happening in London right now happen here in Ontario. Travis Danraj, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Make sure you're uh, watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on all of this. Travis, thanks so much for the time. Been a hectic week. Uh, Try to enjoy your weekend. Be well. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, We heard today earlier on the news conference of uh, Premier Doug Ford uh, just after 10 o'clock this morning. And obviously the tone, very dark. Also, uh, Dr. Yaffe as well, uh, who, who said, uh, to be frank, they are scary when referring to the numbers uh, that we're all going to get at the early part of next week, uh, which are showing the direction uh, that we are going in with COVID-19. Uh, obviously, numbers uh, increasing uh, daily, and uh, the hospitals are starting to feel that. And that is the issue. The issue is is that people end up in hospital, end up in ICUs, and this, uh, of course, just bogs the system down. Down to the point where we're cancel, uh, canceling surgeries and heaven forbid if someone has an accident, a heart attack or is in need of something emergency, obviously the system is under tremendous stress. Now, uh, during the first wave of this, um, they built a field hospital uh, near Joseph Brandt. We'll tell you more about that in just a second. And it's been there since April. Didn't have to use it during the first wave. However, things have greatly changed during the second wave. Let's bring in Eric Vandewal, CEO of Joseph Brand Hospital, and with us now. Eric, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Good afternoon, Scott. Uh, thanks for having me on today. So I'm guessing the fact that this has been around since April and the fact that we're just using it now, pretty safe to say the second wave is a lot worse than the first. Yes, uh, absolutely. And uh, to your earlier point, uh, the numbers and that we're going to be seeing next week from the Premier um, are going to be uh, quite alarming. And uh, it is really now time uh, for everybody to follow the measures, follow the lockdown measures, and start taking this uh, pandemic seriously. Because, uh, as you know, there's always a lag with the numbers. And so what we will see next week, uh, there we will uh, definitely experience going forward if we don't see some significant changes. So tell us about this. uh, Let's start with the logistics of it all. Tell us about this building. Tell us about this structure and and what you've created here uh, way back in April. Yes. uh, So Joseph Brand Hospital, um, I guess it was in March when we saw the projections at that time and measures hadn't been put into place. Uh, it was appearing as though um, we would see similar scenarios that were unfolding in Italy and New York at the time. And so we made the decision to uh, create extra capacity, bed capacity, at Joseph Brand Hospital to uh, support caring for COVID-19 patients. And all hospitals were asked to increase capacity at that time. So uh, the PRU, as it's called, is um, essentially a 73-bed uh, facility. It uh, has all the comforts of, uh, of, of an indoor hospital in terms of heating, cooling, air conditioning, Wi-Fi, uh, showers, bathrooms. However, it's a very unique model in that it is specifically to care for COVID-positive patients who are really at a stage where they don't need to be in an inpatient hospital setting, um, but they do need still perhaps to be um, supported by oxygen, uh, medications, as well as some ongoing monitoring before they go home. So uh, that was my next question, is who actually goes to this uh, uh, field hospital, per se, as opposed to uh, being in an ICU? At what stage are you when you are in this facility? You would be uh, a patient was... was, uh who's COVID-19 positive would be relatively stable. They would not require intensive care um, and they would be on a trajectory and a path whereby they're heading to go home. What this allows us to do, Scott, is to uh, decant patients who meet the criteria for the PRU from hospitals across the region. And so uh, the PRU is part of a regional COVID uh, model of care strategy that we've developed with Hamilton, Niagara, Haldeman, Brandt hospitals, uh, including Joseph Brandt Hospital to allow all hospitals to continue to provide scheduled surgeries and other scheduled care versus seeing those hospitals being overrun by COVID patients. And so what we can do then is decant from those hospitals to the PRU, thereby keeping capacity available for scheduled care and also accessing regional tertiary programs. So I understand this opened up this week. Uh, how, what, what is the capacity now? Where are you now? We opened this week. Uh, we've had some patients already uh, come through and return to home, which is great. And we're currently in the process of identifying other patients who would be uh, suitable for the uh, for the PRU and to meet the criteria for admission. 
How do you staff this? Obviously, more beds, uh, more hospital, and needs more staff. Yes, great question. So the entire healthcare system is really under a lot of stress in terms of staffing. Uh, all hospitals are experiencing pressures for staffing. We've developed a pretty unique model in that because it is a open area and uh, one congregate space, it allows us to kind of increase the staffing ratios that we normally would do, right. as well as it's also being, it's really a multidisciplinary care model. So it's led by our primary care physicians who work in the community uh, under the leadership of our chief of uh, family medicine, Dr. Arshad Hack, as well as we have uh, nurses, patient care assistants, respiratory therapists, physiotherapists, home and community care coordinators. So a broad array of, of care professionals that are deployed uh, to support the needs of the patients before they return home. Uh, I've seen pictures of this structure. It's certainly not a pop tent by any means. Uh, it's quite the complex. Uh, how long did it take to construct this? Yes, so you're quite right. It's, uh, although it appears from a distance as a tent, it is not. It is a full structure that meets uh, building and fire codes. It is... Um, um, fully, as I mentioned, has all the uh, comforts of home, so to speak, air conditioning, heating, uh, Wi-Fi, shower facilities, etc. And uh, when we put it up in April, uh, we went under an expedited build. So it was approximately two weeks to construct uh, last April. Hmm. Now, what about the future of such facilities? Obviously, we're not the only ones here to do this at this point. Uh, others are, are are moving towards this. But Eric, what, what do you do with this post-pandemic? Is this something that you keep uh, on the back burner, or do you dismantle this? Well, uh, let's uh, hoping that everything goes as planned, and that we would see ourselves not having to have this extra capacity available, and that uh, the pandemic does eventually uh, sunset at some level. It would—it's uh, essentially a provincial resource, Scott. So we would, could see it dismantled and um, uh, be, become part of the uh, pr- provinces emergency preparedness toolkit so to speak and it could be so in other words you could so in other words eric you could dismantle this and move it somewhere else yeah absolutely so it's completely reusable dismantable and uh, can be used for other purposes or the same purpose in another location so what does it mean eric when we've got to this point uh obviously you, you you guys constructed this back in april it must have been a relief not to have had to use it what does it say now that you do well, uh, it was always viewed as really um, an insurance policy in a sense, in that we wanted to make sure we had as much bed capacity as possible to support the, the needs of the people of Burlington as well as the region. And so I, I guess the, the, best foresh- the best foreshadowing in all of this or premonition is uh, if we look to the east of us and what's happening in uh, the uh, central GTA areas. And many hospitals are uh, having significant demand. They're being over, overrun in some cases in terms of having available acute care and ICU capacity. Um, they've had to reduce surgeries to potentially as low as 50% of their regular scheduled care. So all of this is the PRU is part of our toolkit and our plan here in the, the region of Hamilton, Niagara, Haldeman, Brant to try to avoid that situation as much as possible. And so, as I said, we're scheduled care is, is uh, still continuing. We haven't had to make reductions in scheduled care yet. Uh, and the PRU is a tool to hopefully allow us to continue to, to keep scheduled care going as planned. You were mentioning earlier, Eric, that, uh, that this facility is used for those in the later stages of COVID-19, those that are uh, recovering and, and hopefully on their way, uh, on their way out of, of, of hospital as opposed to those that are in need of intensive care in the earlier stages. What can you tell us about the patients in there? Is there, any, is there a stereotype? Is there an age? Is there a, a demographic? Is there, what can you tell us about what's going on in there? in order to give us out here a, a sense of, of, of what you're really under? Well, you know, the profile of um, a typical COVID-19 patient is pretty broad in terms of age. It could be, you know, we've seen as of recent in the, in the second wave, um, a, a large number of the demographic in the under 40 uh, demographic that's uh, in terms of community-acquired spread and infection. Um, People in hospital uh, currently are anywhere between 40 and, and, and into their 80s uh, in terms of their, their age group. So really a broad spectrum, Scott, in terms of people. You know, COVID is not, uh, doesn't really differentiate. It is very infectious and uh, anybody can acquire COVID. Many have said that January, February, March going to be the most difficult time. Um, where do you see this going in the next uh, 60 days, 90 days? 
I would completely agree. I think these next uh, two months are going to be extremely challenging for the healthcare system, and it's going to be so important for all of us to follow the measures, to stay home, to limit uh, discretionary travel, wash our hands, wear a mask, follow these measures, uh, because if we don't, uh, the hospital system could be overrun, and we've seen that in other jurisdictions over the past few months in the United States, for example. And we want to make sure as a hospital system, we're there for when you need us the most. However, if we get to a point where there's just no bed capacity, it's going to um, really be challenging for healthcare professionals. Uh, providing, you know, they're going to have to face ethical decisions that nobody would want to have to make in terms of people receiving care. So, we really have to act now, and uh, I believe that these next four to six to eight weeks are going to be extremely challenging. When you set out to do this way back in April and and, and you were seeing what was happening in Europe and, and New York State and such and, and, and wanted to, to be prepared, how do you go about starting to build uh, a field hospital? Like, I mean, is that something you Google? I mean, how do you how do you know what standards, what to do? I mean, where do you start with something like that? Yeah, great question. So, um we knew of field hospital structures and models, and so uh, we had several simultaneous events happening. One, you know, there was the whole uh, procurement design capacity, but most importantly, we had our clinical experts lead the design. Uh, that includes our chief of staff, Dr. Ian Pereira. We have intensivists involved who work in ICU, uh, our infection prevention and control teams, nursing teams. So we had a broad-based team that... Uh, came together to design the PRU, and that was also based on evidence that existed from other jurisdictions where field hospitals had been previously built. And what about the decision to make it a sort of recovery stage uh, hospital? Well, we again, that was based on the clinical uh, planning at that point in time. And so, in fact, the PRU had been designed to potentially work in a number of different ways. It could, it could, it has been designed to operate as a level two ICU if needed. That's not how we're ultimately using it today. Uh, and if we were to use it as a level two ICU, that would be only half the capacity of the 73 spaces that we have. And so, we felt that there was um, a much better uh, value proposition, and I think uh, impact by having the model that we have. That really patients are there for no longer than 72 hours. They're on the tail end of their uh, recovery for uh, in, in terms of COVID and getting ready to, ho- to go home, but they can't go home yet. And so uh, with that need for a lesser level of care, that allowed just, allows us to stage people out of acute care settings where they do need a higher level of care and keeps things flowing and keeps uh, beds available for those who need acute care. Other, uh, other jurisdictions that are in the same position that you are in and uh, how much communication between those jurisdictions on all of this? Uh, very good question. So certainly there's been interest in field hospitals uh, from other organizations in Ontario. And so we have a whole project charter developed in our model of care documented. So we very freely uh, shared that information with those looking at establishing field hospitals uh, with the hope that they can use it, that they don't have to reinvent the wheel and that they can get their capacity up and built as quickly as possible. Any idea how long you will need this? A great question, Scott. My hope would be uh, for not uh, very long at all, obviously. However, um, as we've seen with COVID, you know, it, it does. It's uh, highly infectious. We've had we're in a second wave. Um, the vaccine is going to be a, a very powerful tool in our toolkit to, to mitigate further spread going forward. I expect, though, we will have. Uh, the, uh, the PRU in place at least another year from uh, this spring so that we can go through a full cycle to see you know, how things have stabilized, what the prevalence of COVID is, and still have that capacity available should we need it. All right, so here we are, uh, the, the reality setting in that this uh, field hospital has to be put into uh, operation. The Premier and, uh, and Dr. Yaffe and the rest of the staff today, uh, obviously a very, very somber tone uh, in regard to the numbers that are coming out uh, at the beginning of, the, of uh, next week. What is your message to citizens out there? And, and you, <laughs> you know, the, you know the, uh, the drill. There's everything from those that are on one side of the spectrum to those that are on the other. Uh, fatigue is pretty much uh, you know, embracing, encompassing everybody. What is your message to people that are, that are having a tough time with this? Well, it is. Uh, everybody has a COVID story, Scott, and uh, everybody is experiencing yeah. COVID in different ways. And so, um, I, like many, we're very attuned to uh, 
uh, challenges that people may be facing, be that isolated at home as, a, as an elderly individual because of you know not having not traveling other than essential needs, or mental health uh, issues and concerns that may be arising as a result of the COVID pandemic. So I think the message I would I would give to people is, um, you know, we've we've gotten through this first wave together. And that has been by all of us really banding together. And, and in the first wave, there was a real different feeling publicly than there is now, right? In the first wave, everybody joined together and said, okay, we can beat this. We're going to hunker down, so to speak, and um, follow the measures. And we'll work through this lockdown with the view that that will get us out of this pandemic quicker. And so we ended up in a very good place last by, I look back to last August, and we had less than 100 new cases per day in Ontario, less than 100 and continuing to decline. And so by relaxing and potentially thinking things are done and uh, not fully understanding how infectious this disease is, we find ourselves fast forward, here we are today, and we're in a worse situation than we could have ever imagined, and uh, it's still gonna get worse. So I think the message I would leave with people is we really have to take this virus seriously. Um, the vaccine is important, but it's not a cure. It does prevent, obviously, acquiring COVID. But in the meantime, until everybody is vaccinated in Ontario, which could be, uh, you know, in several months' time, which will be in several months' time, our responsibility now is to mitigate further spread. And right now, the majority of the spread is happening through community-acquired infection, uh, likely through gatherings, not following practices and measures, unnecessary travel, so I would just ask the public, um, if we all band together on this like we did in the first wave, we can bend the, bend the curve and um, not see the, the hospital system become overwhelmed because, as I said at the beginning, we'd like to be here when you need us the most. Eric Vandewal has been with us, CEO of Joseph Brandt Hospital, updating us on the first week of operation of Joe Brandt's Field Hospital. Eric, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. And please pass along to your staff uh, how grateful we are uh, in and around the area for all you and your staff are doing to keep us all safe. Good luck. Be well. Thank you, Scott. All the best. Eric. Eric Vandewal has been with the CEO of Joseph Brandt Hospital. Their new field hospital is now in operation. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I would like to begin by addressing the heinous attack on the United States Capitol. Like all Americans, I am outraged by the violence, lawlessness, and mayhem. I immediately deployed the National Guard and federal law enforcement to secure the building and expel the intruders. America is and must always be a nation of law and order. The demonstrators who infiltrated the Capitol have defiled the seat of American democracy. To those who engaged in the acts of violence and destruction, you do not represent our country. Wow, this must be killing him. You will pay. Uh, can you tell that I'm reading something that was written for me? Can you tell I'm reading something that I really don't want to read or I believe in in no way whatsoever? Oh, man, this is getting more and more painful every single day we have to watch this. Uh, obviously, that is uh, President Donald Trump, who has now uh, said that he is looking for, uh, has admitted and acknowledged a, a new administration will be coming in, uh, after inauguration and that, uh, is, uh, is, uh, asking for a, a peaceful transition of power, uh, a complete 180 from the speech that he gave just before, uh, a whole pile of, uh, his supporters marched down to the Capitol building. Let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. He is with us now. Reggie thank you for the time i hope you're well good afternoon so wow what a change in tone in just uh 24 hours or so your thought on this uh this latest statement from the president and his tone has it changed uh or you know is it just another uh, another way of, of getting through another day for him well, I mean, Scott, look, uh, the president's video that he made yesterday was uh, was very clearly done under duress. Uh, you could hear the difference in tone. Uh, the law and yeah. order president trying to come through by saying that the people who uh, instigated the violence inside the Capitol, uh, you know, will, will have to pay the ultimate price. Uh, you know, 24 hours earlier, that same crowd, as uh, the crisis was uh, underway, he was saying, you know, we love you. Uh, yeah. So, you know, there was very clearly uh, a change in tone, but that tone has changed once again. You know, just a couple of hours ago, the president put a tweet out 
saying that, you know, the 75 million American patriots that voted for him will have a giant voice, but also adding that they will not be disrespected or treated unfairly in any way. You know, this is the same group of people who 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 breached the security of the heart of American democracy and government um, and ultimately created a deadly situation. The president now saying that they will not be disrespected. Um, obviously, we've seen several White House uh, staff resign since all of this went down the other day on uh, on Capitol Hill. Uh, what is the fallout? And I hate to say this, Reggie, but is this like anything else we've talked about for the last however many years? It depends on who you ask. Or is the support slowly deteriorating for the president? Well, I mean, publicly, the support is deteriorating. I think it raises a question, though, of why it took, you know, being on the brink of disaster for uh, those who have stood closest to the president, notably those in his executive cabinet, um, when they've listened to the rhetoric and they've heard the bombast and they've seen the kind of demise uh, of, of, of the norms in Washington, why, you know, why they waited until so long to say that enough is enough. We've seen his education secretary, who herself, Betsy DeVos, has come under serious uh, criticism and scrutiny during her time. We've seen Elaine Chow, the transportation secretary, leave. We're now hearing that legal counsel for the, uh, at the White House, Pat Cipollone, is also potentially marking his exit. We've heard that Hope Hicks, one of the president's longest-serving aides on her second round at the White House, is on her way out. His former press secretary or deputy press secretary spoke today saying she had simply had enough after the election. Again, these lies uh, you know, have been kind of perpetuated by the president for months, if not years, and people are only realizing that it could be problematic now because America, its safety uh, and its kind of history w- was put into question just a couple of days ago. Uh, it certainly appears as if some are uh, in the Republican Party are cutting bait from uh, from the president. Um, I've heard one pundit say that, and you know, this is all speculation at this point, but this party could be damaged for for up to ten years. Do you think that's possible? I don't know if we can put a time frame on there, but you have a fracture inside the Republican Party that is going to be very difficult uh, to mend, and that is because you have the Trump Republicans. Uh, that are, you know, becoming a louder voice. They may not be the greatest numbers, but they have the loudest voice. And that faction of the Republican Party uh, is not what, you know, Mitch McConnell and the old school GOP uh, represent. Uh, So, you know, you now you have this disorganized group of moderate Republicans like Mitch McConnell uh, trying to organize the party when a majority of that party, or at least a growing number of that party, they don't believe in that. So you essentially have kind of a two-party system with two parties that is acting as two of its own. You know, how they get through this, you know, is anybody's guess. Without Trump there, does that group still have that loud voice? That's something that we have to wait and see. Uh, We certainly saw politicians right to the very end supporting Donald Trump, including those like Ted Cruz. Lindsey Graham comes out yesterday and starts speaking. And, you know, it was as if even the press corps didn't believe what he was saying. How can can politicians like this possibly uh, reposition themselves this late in the game and have credibility? Well, I mean, look, if if credibility, uh, you know, if we're talking about uh, in the eye of the of the public and the eye of the electorate, uh, it may be gone. Look, Lindsey Graham, there was video posted not all that long ago uh, of, of the senator at Reagan National Airport in Washington uh, getting ready to leave to head home, uh, being surrounded and heckled and verbally accosted by a significant number of people who, you know, very likely could have been here for the Trump rally, uh, calling him a traitor, calling him, uh, you know, every name that they could think of pushing back on him. Uh, and this is going to be a problem now for Republicans who decided to stand up for the Constitution and democracy and not kind of act as, you know, a lockstep bootlicker uh, for, for President Trump. Um, the president has a stronghold over a significant part of, of the Republican electorate, uh, and he has made them angry at anybody who kind of falls into the mainstream, even if it has been somebody who has stood by President Trump for the longest time. This goes back to, you know, the comments about the media. If the media criticizes Donald Trump, we are therefore an enemy. Now President Trump is doing that to the Republicans who have stood by him, but have simply had too much.
It amazes me as we look more and more at the footage and what happened the other day in Washington and some of the clips of, of people and the protesters that were there. And, and again, you, you can't paint them all with the same brush. There, there certainly are some disenfranchised people there that, that, uh, that feel that they've been, they've been left behind. But I remember one elderly gentleman screaming that his, his, his rights were being violated and, and so on and so forth. And I'm thinking to myself, well, this is an election, uh, not a war. And every few years we have them and sometimes we change power, sometimes we don't. What the hell happened here? Like, this is just another election. In four years, you can get back what you want. It seems that that seems exactly. to be gone from, from American psyche. And that's what happens when you have a president who feeds uh, a series of lies to people who have followed him blindly for the last four years. President Trump knew he lost this election. And instead of telling his supporters and the Republican Party that, hey, we lost, we're going to do our best to see if we can, you know, use the legal system to our advantage within, you know, the rights of the law. Um, after that, if we don't do that, the, the election will be over. President Trump did not do that. President Trump continues to say that this election was stolen from him uh, because of uh, baseless claims and baseless allegations of fraud. His voters only hear that the election was stolen from him, and that's all that matters to them. Uh, this, this lies in the hands of, of the president uh, and the enablers inside the Republican Party, like Josh Hawley, like Ted Cruz, like Representative Brooks, who are perpetuating these lies uh, that Donald Trump lost uh, without saying, like you said, this is what happens in a democracy. This is what happens when elections take place. There's a winner and there's a loser. This is not one of those countries where a winner is chosen before the ballot box is open on Election Day. Um, but President Trump's supporters don't want to hear that. Um, we've heard a lot in the last little while in regard to the security and how this possibly could have happened on Capitol Hill. Any more on that? Lots of comparisons to, you know, the, the fortification during the Black Lives Matter uh, rallies, but not this one. No, look, there, there are serious concerns over the lack of, uh, of law enforcement that was in the Capitol or at least surrounding the Capitol as this mob made their way to the front doors. And you're right, it's a stark difference to what we saw in the summertime when you had a strong-arm show of force standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial uh, when there were Black Lives Matter protesters in the streets of the city, uh, really, and around the country. Uh, when you now have people who are actively trying to tear down democracy and you had Capitol Hill police uh, opening the doors and opening the barricades to let these people in, you know, whether it was because they just you know, were overrun or whatever the, whatever the situation was, that is why there are investigations uh, underway. There was a serious lapse uh, and failure uh, to secure the, the, you know, one of the most sacred places in this country. Uh, and, and there are questions now as to what happened and what failures took place at top levels, including at the White House. Why was the National Guard not allowed to, uh, to be dispatched into Washington, D.C.? There are reporting now that the U.S. Capitol Police dismissed uh, an offer from the Pentagon to have the National Guard in place days before this took place. And as the mob was going to the uh, to the Capitol building, the Department of Justice offered law enforcement uh, and it was still pushed back on. So there are several questions here that aren't answered. And unfortunately, that lack of law enforcement is why we had a deadly situation. Wow. Uh, last question here, Reggie. I know you got to run. Uh, still uh, just less than two weeks before uh, the president's reign comes to an end. Many uh, the other day were talking about his removal. Today he's come out with a much uh, defeated, more defeated tone and acknowledging uh, the changing of the administration. Is this enough to cool things for the next uh, few days and, and until inauguration? Or do you see something else happening here? Well, likely not. And Should also the fact that he is also, sorry, Reggie, to interrupt, the fact that he has announced that he will not be attending the inauguration. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. Considering he is not going to attend a time-honored uh, tradition that his predecessors have all done, as he is actively putting that video out calling for a time for reconciliation and healing, uh, is notable here. Uh, but we also have to remember that Democrats are going forward uh, no matter what the president does and no matter what the president's tone is. There's reporting right now that uh, articles of impeachment could be brought to the House floor or at least drafted uh, by Monday. And ultimately, uh, leadership within the Democratic Party is saying that these could be, you know, ready to be voted on possibly by Wednesday. So regardless of what President Trump wants to do during his next 12 days, there is an active 
kind of you know effort underway to ensure that Democrats can try to either impeach him or, you know, with what they're trying to do, remove him from office. Look, we had Nancy Pelosi as well go to the Joint Chiefs of Staff to have a conversation with them to ensure that President Trump can't initiate some kind of catastrophic military strike uh, or, or use the nuclear codes to create some kind of, 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 you know, catastrophe. That is how serious the situation is right now. And no matter what President Trump says or no matter what his tone is that, you know, changes with the wind, Democrats are not going to buy into it and they simply want to see him gone. What was the reaction when it was announced in Washington that he was not going to attend the inauguration? I'm thinking that's the only thing he's ever said that everybody agrees on. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the tweet came out from President Trump and, and the reaction was, well, the sky is blue. You know, we knew that President <laughs> Trump w- was likely not going to show up at this inauguration. There's already reporting that President Trump won't even be in D.C. Uh, in the days surrounding inauguration and potentially could leave, whether it's to overseas or whether it's to, to Mar-a-Lago. Uh, th- this has been a conversation we knew was likely going to take place. Uh, and, and we were simply all just waiting for President Trump's announcement to say that he wouldn't do it. We still don't know if Mike Pence is going to be there as well. Uh, you know, and you all have to remember, President Trump, uh, despite the fact that he actively called for Hillary Clinton uh, to be locked up at his inauguration, the Clintons stood at the front of, of the row and watched President Trump take the oath that Hillary Clinton was looking for. And here you are now, President Trump, not doing it simply because he lost the election. Unbelievable. Uh, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News, Reggie Giacchini, has been with us. Reggie, thank you for the time as always. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. It's the first time this year, 2021. But uh, boy, oh, boy, we're going to continue with the uh, messages of hope that we've been getting uh, or enlightenment from uh, Jim Carrier, Reverend Jim Carrier. He, of course, is with uh, Good Shepherd Church down in St. Catharines and is with us now. Jim, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am doing well. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. How are you doing? Did you have a good one? I did, yeah, quiet, like uh, like most people, a quiet uh, holiday, but uh, but it was quite quite nice, quite um, um, refreshing. You know, it was funny, Jim. We were uh, together with the family, meaning me and my wife and my two kids, uh, yeah. on New Year's Eve, and we played Monopoly, the old board game out. Actually, my old Monopoly game that I got when I was like eleven years old. Uh, wow. It's barely holding together with the duct tape, but it's what there. Was a, what was a Monopoly dollar worth back then? Uh, who knows? But I mean, again, it's like all the old original pieces, which I'm not even sure they have anymore. Wow. Uh, but it was funny because my daughter plays the banker and she won't hand out ones. She goes, no, ones aren't needed anymore. They're like the penny. So she just gives you a five. The game's not played with ones. I don't get it. Okay. Uh, anyway, we were sitting and we're chatting. And after it was over, uh, or the next day, my wife said to me, she goes, what was your best? Can you think back? What was the best New Year's Eve ever? And honestly, uh, perhaps because most of them I can't remember, but on the other hand, it was, it was this one. And it was because we were all together. There was nothing else we could do. Um, we've been doing this now for 43 weeks. So, uh, it, it's like we're on the wrestling mat ready to say uncle. Well, you know, we realize things aren't where, where they used to be. Um, and, 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 and of course are much smaller, but man, it, it, it I thought I had, a, I had a great time. I thought it was great. And, and I think the whole family did. Good, good. You know, we've, we've, uh, live in a lifestyle usually where we're just, uh, we're just kind of running around. You know, we're trying to earn our yeah. bucks. We're trying to provide for our families and, and we don't really get enough time or allow ourselves enough time just to kind of sit and be still with one another. And I think we've talked about this before about, about how this is a good time and a good opportunity. Uh, to do that sort of thing, to just slow down. I know that there are worries that we that we have in terms of you know, people are, are not working as much as they used to, some not at all because of this. So I get that. Um, but, but but there's still an opportunity here just to, to quiet down and maybe even re, rejig your priorities and, 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 and just enjoy these moments. And hopefully, by the time it's all over, you'll hang on to them, uh, not just in memory, but also in action. And maybe, you know, every couple of years, maybe every New Year's Eve, do the same thing with your family over and over again and uh, start a new tradition that way. Sit and be still with one another. It takes a while to do that, doesn't it? It's like it's taken us this long to finally realize this. It, it does. It does. And, um, and it, I think it 
part of the problem is that we're not really used to that. We're not really used to, yeah. to, to just settling in with one another for, for, a, for a long period of time uh, because there's always so much to do. And, and so I think that this, is, that this is really a good opportunity for us to, to reacquaint ourselves, not just with one another, but with what it feels like to rest with one another and to be refreshed with one another. Uh, obviously, uh, I'm not sure if you caught the premier's press conference this morning, but some pretty grim news. Uh, just a, a very much a darker tone uh, that we would been have been receiving in the last little while. Not that it can any get get much darker, um, but obviously made reference to modeling that's coming up early next week. That's he said is going to be scary, and we've talked about this. This was this was predicted. Let me get that, Jim. Uh, this was predicted. <laughs> I can love live radio at home. Uh, this was predicted. Uh, we did know it was going to happen. We did know that January and February were going to be uh, the most difficult months. But here we are uh, right in the throes of this. Uh, but what do you say to people who, you know, Christmas is over, the holidays are over, and, uh, you know, the February blahs can be what they are anyway. And now we add on this. Well, I think, uh, you know, it's a question of, of preparedness that we – you know, we, we've, we've expected this, um, in the same way we've expected what was, what, what happened, uh, on Capitol Hill. I mean, mm. we've expected these things, but we've been sort of unprepared for them. I think that in terms of the health crisis, that, that we are as, as prepared as we can be at the moment. So the fear is, um, is that, uh, is that our, our hospitals will be overrun. There are already a couple in southwestern Ontario that are experiencing that. Um, so that there are there, there are going to be difficulties ahead, but but you mentioned the word dark times, and you mentioned the word darkness, and I use an analogy when I when I speak with people about about their difficulties, and I and I talk about them being in a cave, and so you're at the center of a cave, and and all around you are these little these little doorways, if you will, but they're open doors, so you can see down these tunnels, and down one tunnel there's there, there, there's a beam of light. Which tunnel are you going to head down? Uh, you're going to head toward the beam of light. You're going to head toward the hope. You're going to ho- head toward the, the solution to the problem. And, and there, are, there are some people who have a tendency to, to want to go into the darkness, to want to go into those dark tunnels, and, you know, with conspiracy theories or whatnot, when that light is right directly in front of them. So my encouragement is to just keep your eye on that light. Don't, don't move into the darkness, because the light, the darkness cannot overcome the light. So just keep heading toward the light. And the light, of course, is the vaccine. The light is, is, is a time and a place in our history when we will be out of this uh, in real time, that we'll, we will be beyond this crisis and, and, and the hope of a vaccine and whatnot. So, so I encourage people just to, just to fix themselves on that and act accordingly. If you're in, if you're in a cave, you're going to work toward getting that light. You're not going to hang around the darkness. You're not going to stay where you are. You're not going to head through the dark tunnels. You're going to work and live your life toward obtaining that light. And so that's my encouragement is just continue to focus on that light. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. You know, a message of hope is not, is not, is not the things are going to be easy. Things are definitely going to be hard, but there is something beyond this, something good beyond this. And we can bring a lot of good stuff out of this, out of this dark cave if we keep our eyes fixed on the light. Wow, very well said, Jim. Uh, Reverend Jim Carrier with us from Good Shepherd Church with his uh, weekly message of hope. Keep focused on the light, not the darkness. Jim, thanks so much. Uh, great words. Uh, be well. Uh, all the best to you and the family, and we'll chat again next week. Thank you, Scott. God bless. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.